Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Do not cast your pearls before swine is an oft-quoted maxim applied to all sorts of situations, but what Jesus actually meant by it is a head-scratcher to most people. Especially enigmatic is why Jesus would tell us to adjudge some people swine in the very next breath after telling us to judge not lest we be judged. But as is always the case with Jesus, this apparent inconsistency points to a deeper truth. What Jesus is talking about in both cases is the need for us to judge righteously as God judges. Loving to find fault with our brother while being blind to our own faults is a failure to judge our brother as well as ourselves righteously. Likewise, continuing to hand out the pearls of the gospel to those who are openly treating it with disdain, contempt, or hostility is a failure to judge those trampling the gospel as well as the gospel itself righteously. You see, the way we communicate the gospel and the context in which we communicate the gospel become part of the message. To keep on shoveling out pearls to a pig who openly treats them as worthless says to the pig that we agree with him. That's not only bad for the gospel, it's bad for the pig. It's not only what we say that must communicate the truth, but also how we say it, when we say it, and when we refuse to say it. And one of the most important truths we always want to communicate about the gospel is that it is priceless. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. We come this morning to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. This is the word of God. Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray now, bring your word to us by the Holy Spirit, that we might have understanding, that we might have strength and encouragement, that we may have your spirit working within us, that we would uh, be your faithful witnesses, your light to the world. And we pray all of this to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus has been talking about judgment in this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he, got, he just got through rebuking us in the first part of chapter 7 for the way that we tend to love to find fault with one another and we tend to be blind to our own faults. And having just said that, he now says to us, do not give what is holy to dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine. And so the question immediately arises, how does that kind of judgment fit together with what he just told us about not being judgmental. Well, remember that Jesus' fundamental point is, to not, is not to stop judging, but to start judging righteously. Jesus is calling us in all of this to maturity. To engage in no judgment is to be a little baby. To judge unrighteously, that is according to surface appearance 
is to be a child, but to judge righteously according to the truth, the true substance of things, the true merits of things, is to be mature. And that's what we were designed for according to Hebrews chapter 5. Refraining from all judgment is impossible because never making a judgment is a judgment. It is a judgment that everything is acceptable. And it results in a situation where nothing is judged according to true merit, precisely because truth and merit have been adjudged to be irrelevant. So the real question is, how are we going to judge? Are we going to judge things according to surface appearance? Are we going to judge them by our own prejudices? Or are we going to judge them as God judges them, righteously according to true uh, substance? And so in the, previously, Jesus has commanded us to judge ourselves and our brethren righteously with real discernment and also compassion. And now he commands us to judge something else. And what he's really telling us to judge here is the gospel itself. He's telling us to judge the gospel righteously with real discernment. And he's telling us to communicate the gospel in a way that is consistent with the true nature of the gospel. Well, what is the true nature of the gospel? Well, Jesus doesn't actually use the word gospel in our passage, but it's what he's referring to when he talks about that, what is holy and when he talks about pearls. By using those words, holy and pearls, Jesus is using two of the chief descriptors of the gospel itself. The gospel is holy, that is, it is from God. It is from God. And when he says it is pearls, he is telling us that it is priceless. And we need to think about this. The gospel, he says, is holy, which means it's God's gospel. It's his good news. The gospel is God's idea and God's doing from start to finish. The gospel is not man reaching for God, but God reaching for man. It is not man theorizing about God, but God revealing himself to man. The gospel is not God giving man a helping hand, but God saving helpless man. There is nothing about the gospel, nothing, that is the way that we would write it. The gospel leaves no place for our merit. It leaves no place for our self-glory. Furthermore, it completely stands on uh, its head our conceptions about God and who He is. We conceive of the, of the holy and righteous God and the august God so highly exalted, but a God who would come and become one of us and who would uh, take our sin upon us, who would go to the cross. Such a God we cannot conceive of. He must reveal Himself to us. Paul sums up the gospel in... Ephesians chapter 2, and this is what he says. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. But God, the two greatest words in Scripture, but God. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
And this is what it means to be saved by grace. It's for God to break into the world, to break into history, to break into our lives, and to set aside all the mess and the ruin that we have brought about. He says he's made us alive in Christ and he's raised us up with him and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's how secure your salvation is. You're already seated with Christ in the heavens. And why is God doing this? He is doing this so that in the ages to come, the aeons to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. And so it is from God. It is holy. The next thing Jesus tells us is that the gospel is priceless, which is why Jesus refers to it as pearls. The gospel of the kingdom is the pearl of great price, for which Jesus says we should sell everything and uh, everything we have in order to possess it. There's nothing that we can possess that compares to it. Paul described his life and his attitude toward Christ many years after Christ had converted him on the road to Emmaus. Don't remember, don't forget that Paul basically went off into the Arabian desert and was really out of the picture for 14 years, he tells us in the book of Galatians, before he really started and began his ministry. But even after all those years, and even after Paul had been preaching the gospel and gone on his missionary journeys and suffered all kinds of uh, trials and tribulations on behalf of the gospel, Paul still said that he has counted everything as loss for the sake of Christ, that he may know Christ, that he may know him, that he may know the power of Christ's resurrection, and that he may even know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings so that he may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so this was the priceless pearl to Paul, and it is to be to us as well. It is the pearl of great price. It is the power of God, says Paul, unto salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who comes to salvation comes to salvation by believing the truth of this gospel. And it's the power of God into salvation to everyone believes precisely because it is true whether we believe it or not. The martyrs who died in the Roman arena in the early centuries of the church did not die because Jesus had brought a new religious experience into the world. They died there because the gospel is true. They died there because Jesus is God incarnate. He was born of a virgin. They, di- they died on that sand because Jesus offered up himself, uh, not just as the foil of a, of a cruel f- plot to frame him, but he went there by the design of God himself to take all the sin of the world to heap it up on Israel and to manifest it in that moment and that time when those people on behalf of all of us said, we will not have this man to rule over us. Away with him, away with him. We have no king but Caesar. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. God brought all the darkness of the world to that moment and put it on Christ. That's why he died. And it's true that Christ was raised from the dead three days later. 
and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And it is he who rules the world and calls all the ends of the earth to turn unto him and be saved. This is the truth. And that's why the martyrs died. Because it's true. And thus, the whole Bible is really the gospel. For the whole Bible is the story of why and how God became man in Jesus and of how Jesus, through the willing sacrifice of himself, became the Lord of heaven and earth. We tend to truncate the gospel and to reduce it down today. We need to remember that when you said gospel in the first century, whether you were talking to Jews or Gentiles, when you said gospel, something very specific came to their minds and it's very different than what comes to our minds. When you said gospel, they thought immediately of the announcement that a new Caesar had ascended to the throne of the Roman Empire because that's what the gospel was. The proclamation of the good news went out that a, a Caesar had ascended to the throne of the Roman Empire and thus was the embodiment of the genius of Rome which brought grace and peace to the world. And so to say that Jesus that you were preaching the gospel of Jesus and to call Jesus Lord, which was Caesar's title, was immediately to make some claims that were not simply uh, going to be passed on. The closest thing that we have in our society today is the inauguration of a new president. Now imagine if you went around announcing that Jesus had been inaugurated. The inauguration of Jesus it would definitely raise some eyebrows and provoke a lot of questions in our culture. People would want to know what you meant by that. They would want to know what is the story behind this and what are the implications because your very terminology suggests that Jesus has been given some kind of office and authority over them, whether they voted for him or not. And further, that they ought to be excited about it. So the essence of the gospel is the announcement that Jesus has been coronated, inaugurated, if you will, as king of heaven and earth. But that announcement does not stand alone. There are a lot of other truths that go with it to explain it. So the gospel connects to and is explained by all the truth that is set forth in scripture. The whole understanding of the world, of life, of history, of good and evil, of love and hope, of wisdom and folly. It all stands together or not at all. So what Jesus is addressing here in our text is the communication of this truth. Any form of sharing, defending, supporting, or explaining any part of God's truth is part of preaching the gospel. Now Jesus refers to some people as dogs and swine. Now dogs, swine, wild beasts, this kind of terminology is often used to describe humanity that is not behaving like it should. Humanity that is behaving beneath itself. We all know what it means if somebody says that there were some college fraternity boys that were being a bunch of animals. We know what they mean by that. And we have Paul in the book of Titus quoting a 6th century B.C. poet and religious reformer from Crete named Epimenides. 
And he quotes Epimenides because Titus is on Crete. Titus is getting the church all organized there in Crete and having elders appointed and so forth. And so he's writing to Titus and he says, this is why you've really got to get things in order because listen to a prophet of their own. And he quotes Epimenides who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says this testimony is true. So put things in order there. Now, it's important that we recognize in our politically correct world that this was Epimenides, who was a Cretan. This was his assessment of the overall character of his own people. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And so that's the kind of language he uses to communicate the overall cultural character of his countrymen. And when we use this kind of language now, if we refer to people as animals or something like that, um, a lot of times we're not just commenting on the way they're acting. A lot of times we're communicating a certain contempt that we have for them. But that, uh, and a good example of that would be the way that the first century Jews used the words dogs or swine, because those were the words that they used to refer to the Gentiles. They called them dogs. They called them swine, and there often was a good deal of contempt uh, that was behind the use of those words by the Jews. It's important to recognize that that's not how the words are being used by Jesus. He's not referring to the Gentiles, first of all. Consider the fact that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, when you look at it, has multiple places where it is specifically fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And what we come to realize is that Psalm 22 is the prayer of Christ on the cross. And so later in the psalm, after it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says this at verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hand and my feet. So the dogs are the congregation of the wicked. And the congregation of the wicked who demand Jesus' crucifixion were not Gentiles. They were Jews. They were members of God's covenant community who were acting like a pack of wild dogs. Paul also in Philippians chapter 3 refers to dogs using it to refer to um, Judaizers that were Jewish Christians who were preaching that unless Gentiles became circumcised, they could not be saved. In other words, Christ is not enough. Baptism does not subsume and supersede all that circumcision pointed to. Paul calls them dogs. He says to the Philippians, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. And that's a Greek word uh, where he makes a play on words and he refers to the circumcision that instead of circumscribing, it amputates. The closest thing I can think of in, in English would be ampucision. Okay? The circumcision that amputates. And so he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the ampucision. For we... We are the circumcision, he says, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. 
And so the way God uses the word is not to refer to a certain ethnicity and it's not to communicate contempt at all because God does not have contempt to sinners. In fact, God has the opposite. He has compassion to sinners. He calls all the world to look to him and be saved. Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. So by using the word dogs and swine, Jesus, uh, calling on a rich prophetic uh, tradition from the Old Testament, is picturing what happened to the human race in the fall. You see, when we turn away from God we truly cease to be fully human because we were made to be the image of God. That means we were made to live in a face-to-face relationship with God, in fellowship with Him, and as a result, we image and reflect God throughout the earth. But when we turn away from God, we can no longer reflect Him, and thus we cannot be who we were created to be. And thus we, sense we cease to be fully human and we begin to die. And the longer we remain turned away from God, the further away from true humanness we sink. On the other hand, when we turn to God through Christ, we're reconciled to God, we're restored to fellowship, we commune with Him face to face, and we begin to be restored to full humanness as the image of God is restored in us by the Holy Spirit. So that is why Jesus here uses the language of wild beast, dog, swine to describe fallen humanity. Jesus here is using dogs and swine to describe anyone, Jew or Gentile, within or without the covenant community, who treats God's truth as though it is common or cheap. That is, the, the gospel merely takes its place alongside all the other ideas, philosophies, religions, value systems, and self-help higher power programs that are out there. It's just one more thing that may work for you. It may be true for you. Such treatment may take the form of indifference, like swine to pearls that you tossed into the pigsty. They're going to walk all over those pearls Because those pearls are no different from gravel or mud to those pigs. They don't recognize any difference. Or it may take the form of hostility, like a pack of wild dogs. If you toss out God's truth to them, they may think you're throwing it at them and turn on you as well as the truth that you've tossed out to them. And that being the case, what are you saying when you keep on tossing pearls into the pig pen. You're basically saying that you agree with the pigs. The very fact that you keep tossing them in there by the handful says that. And what are you accomplishing when you keep throwing God's truth to a pack of wild dogs? It says, dogs, don't think about your family pack. Think about a pack of wild dogs. Unpredictable. You don't know what they're going to do. This is the same thing Solomon talks about in Proverbs chapter 9. He says, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. 
He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Why? Well, Solomon tells us in the very next verse, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Holy One are things that only God can grant. And when He does grant them, it brings about a change of heart so that the former wild dog is no longer hostile but open to God's truth. And the former swine is no longer indifferent but values God's truth. So Jesus is saying that we are to cooperate with the Spirit of God. We are to work where He is working, rather than insisting that He work where we want to work. Now what that means is this. We are to put out the truth of the gospel promiscuously. This is one area we're supposed to be promiscuous. We put the gospel out like the sower of the seed. We're to look for opportunities to share God's truth. Uh, It may be an opportunity to go straight to the heart of the gospel message. It may be an opportunity to help somebody who's having a problem in some area of their life, and that gives you an open door to begin to show them God's truth in that particular area, which then leads you on to their relationship with God and the gospel because we can't apply God's truth unless we're rightly related to him. It may, uh, it may, you look for opportunities to share God's truth. But Jesus is saying when we do so, we are to gauge the response of the person. Do they chafe? Are they hostile? Or are they open? Are they indifferent to God's truth? Is it ho-hum? Yeah, right. Or do they value it? Do they want to hear more? In other words, is there evidence that God may be working to change their heart. Don't just keep tossing out God's truth by the handfuls if there's contrary evidence that suggests that God is not working here. To, to do so is to handle God's truth in a way that suggests it is not from God and it is not valuable. It is to suggest that you agree with the person who regards it as common and cheap. You're confirming them in their unbelief at that point, which is not something you want to do. So the way we communicate the gospel itself communicates. The way we communicate the gospel itself communicates. And we're to ensure not only that the content of the gospel is true, but that the way we communicate it tells the truth about the gospel. It's from God, it is holy, and it is the pearl of great price. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at here. How do we apply it to ourselves as Christians living in the 21st century? Well, I would like to apply it by having us ask ourselves three questions. Three questions. And the first is this one. How are you responding to the gospel? Now, notice I didn't say, have you responded to the gospel? I said, how are you responding to the gospel? Because responding to the gospel is something we do every day, not something we just did once upon a time. The whole world is responding to the gospel one way or another, and so are we. You are responding to the gospel. The question is, how are you responding to it? Has the gospel become indifferent to you? Is it ho-hum? Is it yesterday's news? Is it part of the furniture? 
Or is it still the pearl of great price? Is it the greatest story ever told? Is it the power of God unto salvation? How are you responding to the gospel today? Because it's something that we have to respond to each day. The gospel is about a personal relationship with the living God. It says in Psalm 27, David says, When you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, God, your face, Lord, will I seek. Now that's the essence of the gospel. God says, seek my face. God says to you every day in the gospel, seek my face. What do you say? What do you say? Do you say with David each day, your face, Lord, will I seek? That's responding to the gospel in the proper way. So we have to recognize, do we want to preach the gospel? Then respond to the gospel. Do you want people to respond to the gospel? Show them how. Respond to the gospel each day. Seek God's face each day. Secondly, are you adorning the gospel? Paul in Titus 2 says that our lives are to be an adornment for the gospel in every respect. Our lives are to be the gold setting which displays the pearl of great price. A lot of the way you tell the difference between a pearl and a piece of gravel is the setting. If it's in the middle of a pigsty, you're probably not going to immediately think it's a pearl. If it's laying in the middle of the driveway, you probably won't. You're more likely to think that it's gravel. But if you put it in a gold setting, it immediately stands out as a pearl. And so our lives are to be that gold setting. Our lives are to authenticate the gospel by doing the opposite of what the pig pen does. The pig pen provides a context that takes away from the gospel, that detracts from the gospel, that makes the gospel seem like something else. Our lives are to be the context that authenticates the gospel, that shows it to be genuine, that shows it to be from God, and shows it to be uh, priceless. So your life is a setting for the gospel. It's not a question of whether your life's going to be a setting or not. It is a setting for the gospel. The question is, what kind of setting is it? Do you want to preach the gospel? Then we must adorn the gospel with our lives. And finally, the third question. Are you keeping God and worship in the center? Are you keeping God and worship in the center? Earlier, I referred to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul said, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the ampucision. Okay? So those are the dogs. Even though they're within the covenant community, they're the dogs because of the way they're acting. They're enemies of the gospel at this point. Now, Paul contrasts that with the way we are to be. What is it to be the true people of God? What is it to be the true circumcision? And he says three things. Listen to these. We are the circumcision. Why? Who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and who have no confidence in the flesh. God is always the center. And because God is always the center, worship is always the center. 
Not even evangelism, listen to this, not even evangelism can be absolutized and placed in the center. The whole reason we exist at all is to know God and to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The gospel is that Jesus has restored us to that. To preach this message, we must live it. We must live a life that proclaims the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or in Paul's word, we must live lives that declare that we worship God in the Spirit, we rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. If we live as though evangelism or anything else is the chief end of man or the chief end of the church or the litmus test for holiness, then we are placing confidence in the flesh. And this is, this is what Satan loves to do for us. When the gospel has come to us, when by God's grace we have responded, Satan can't do anything about that. What he wants to do is to push us to the side in some way, make us irrelevant. He wants to introduce idolatry into the church. And so he's not going to take something that's obviously profane and offer it to us as an idol. He wants to take something that's obviously good and simply move it to the center and scoot God over, which then moves worship off of the center and puts something else in its place. Now we can see evidence of this in the Bible itself. Jesus has already talked about giving alms to the poor, fasting, and praying. Those are three good things that the Bible commands but which had been moved to the center and had become the litmus test for righteousness and holiness in the first century. And that's why the Pharisees and the scribes are so careful to do these things very publicly to be seen by others. Okay? So they had become the litmus test for holiness and therefore they were also means of guilt manipulation. They were trump cards. You could play the alms card. It shuts down any conversation because everything stands or falls on helping the poor. And we see this indeed with Jesus himself. At the time of the Last Supper, you remember um, before that, just before that, Jesus is going to be crucified shortly. Mary anoints his feet with her hair and some very costly oil perfume. And so what does Judas say to that? Judas responds and says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Now, we're told that Judas's motives were not pure. We're told that he liked to pilfer money from the money box, which he kept. And so he's not concerned about the poor at all. But here's the point. Why is it that Judas wants to go at this situation by saying that? Why does he say, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor. It's because that had been elevated to the very center. It was a litmus test and therefore it was a trump card. It was a guilt manipulation tool. That's why Judas plays that card. And then Jesus responds to him as, you know, like Jesus doesn't care for the poor. If anybody ever cared for the poor, it's Jesus. But Jesus would have none of it. He basically rhetorically saws Judas's legs off and says, leave her alone. She's preparing me to go to the cross, basically. She's preparing my body for burial. 
And so we see that's a certain cultural setting that it can be used like that. And so Satan loves to take things like that that are good and move them to the center and give them a, a litmus test and guilt manipulation type status. And one of the things in the evangelical church today that tends to have that status is evangelism. It becomes a litmus test. It becomes a trump card. It becomes a guilt manipulation tool. Everything stands or falls over whether it's considered to be evangelistic or missional. These are good things. But if we want to get this right, if we want to preach the gospel, we cannot put it in the center. God and nothing else goes in the center, which means our central response is worship. Again, we are to declare with our lives that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to glorify Him forever. Because ultimately... If we evangelize out of guilt, if we do missions out of guilt, and there's a whole lot of that today, then we're placing confidence in the flesh, according to Paul. If we use evangelism as a guilt manipulation tool, we're putting confidence in the flesh. We're to put all confidence in God. We are to worship God in the Spirit. We're to rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is what our lives are to declare. This is the gold setting that declares the gospel is the pearl of great price. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.